morning. So I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles today to the last book of the Bible, probably the most difficult book to understand because of its genre, its literary genre, being both prophetic in nature and also, as I shared a few weeks back, apocalyptic. And I'm not going to describe that today. But let's just pray that God will open our hearts. And uh, as we are about to do that, turn to chapter 8, I I have a couple of things that I, I need to mention to you that are also important. Um, first of all, Marco and Vanessa, our young adults pastor, uh, about a year or so ago came to me and he said, Pastor, I really feel like God may be speaking to me about planning a church in Vancouver. And so I encouraged him, to, you know, and our church sent him to get a, an assessment if that would be something that he probably has the ability to do. He flew to Montreal. They did an assessment, a very challenging assessment. And they said, yeah, you know, we think that you guys are ready to do that. And so we've been working with this young couple now for about a year, getting them ready to do this. And so uh, they've resigned from their position, and they're going to be leaving at the end of July. So we'll, we'll do something to honor them at the last service in July. But just informing you right now, and so we're working at finding a person to assume that area of responsibility. And also, I had a couple of people step away from the India trip. And so if you have an interest in traveling with my wife and I and a number of people, there's nine of us, but there could be 11 of us. Um, If you're interested in coming to India, October 30th to November 11th, and we're going to serve in that country for two weeks. You're also going to do some traveling. If you're interested in that kind of a mission ministry trip, talk to me after the service, would you? And I can maybe give you more information. All right, so let's turn now to... Uh, Revelation 8. Let's pray. Because I think we are going to need a little clarity. And I'm going to tie in what happened this week in our city. I believe that we can understand sometimes the events of our lives from a biblical vantage point. So Lord, I do come before you today. And I know that this book has been a challenge. Uh, Lots of scholars, biblical scholars have disagreed over different various meanings. But as we look at it carefully... And we compare the scriptures to the scriptures. We look at it in its historical context. Lord, help us to understand it in our present context. How do these things that we're reading about, written in this kind of imagery language, this poetic language, how does that influence us and impact our lives today? Lord, I pray, open our hearts, speak into our innermost being. May we hear your voice. May we gain a sense of the application of these truths in our personal lives. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Now, this past week, uh, our church received a letter from one of the members of parliament. And they were pointing out to me that the current government is amending one of the laws, Bill 51. Now, I don't know if you know very much about how laws are structured, but a lot of times these bills have a number of things packaged inside of the bill. It's not just one thing. It's a whole bunch of things. And one of the things that they're trying to do is what they would say, remove outdated and irrelevant legislation. But this member of parliament was concerned because they they recognize that what the government, the majority government in Ottawa, want to do is remove some of our civic liberties as Christians. And so that's why I got a letter from this member of parliament. I appreciate it. I wrote him back. He said um, they want to remove Clause 14, and he showed me what Clause 14 was, which is uh, the only provision in the criminal code that directly protects the rights of individuals to freely practice their faith in the context of a worshiping community. Now, I wrote that. 
But what, what, what they're trying to remove is the idea that, you know, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you cannot impede, you know, a priest or a minister from carrying out their duties or coming back from their duties or actually come into a, an assembled gathering like this and cause a disruption because that's actually unlawful and could be, you can be prosecuted and actually get sentenced to a maximum of two years. So somebody that creates a disruption in a service, that's an unlawful act, okay? They want to remove all of that because they think that's outdated and irrelevant. So what they're basically saying is people could come in, create disturbances, and there'd be no law governing that behavior. So, you know, that's just one expression of some of the freedoms that we've enjoyed as Canadians beginning to slip away from us. And as this member of parliament pointed out, it's probably the only provision in the criminal code that would protect us in a worshiping context. So in a democratic process, we know, you know, in our process, we have these civil responsibilities and duty and, I think, concern to speak to these issues, right? We can talk to MPs. We can say that we're concerned about this decision. But how many recognize that when you're dealing with a, a party, let's say, and they have the majority, they can easily decide to move forward regardless of what people say, isn't that true? And the minority viewpoint is disregarded, and then this freedom is dissolved. And so, you know, even though I, I think we should be in, engaged in communicating, which I did, I responded, but um, I would say this, that our greatest source of response to, to these kinds of challenges, be they national in scope, be they civic in nature, just our own community, or in our own personal lives, how do we handle challenges that we feel powerless towards? Maybe we don't have the resources to deal with this issue. Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about how powerful prayer really is. And John, in, in the book of Revelation, brings out an image of the power and effect that prayer has in our lives. Now, we've been working through this book, and we're in chapter 8. <clears throat> and... Uh, we're in chapter 8, verse 1, and I want you to turn there in your Bibles, because you know me, I'm, I'm going to have you look in your text, and then I'm going to read a lot from those texts, but I'm also going to bring in other scriptures to try to explain what we're reading. <clears throat> it says here in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal. Now let me just stop and pull back a bit and say, who's the he? Who's the he? When he opened the seventh seal. Who is the he? Well, the right answer is Jesus. And we read that in chapters 5 and 6 because they were concerned. Who is worthy to open the seal? In other words, who is the only one worthy to, un, you know, to expose <clears throat> what God is about to do on the planet? The things that God is about to do. And Jesus is the only one worthy because he's the one who actually paid for humanity's redemption. So Jesus is the one opening now the seventh seal. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That, that, that's very significant. The fact that the Bible says that. We're going to unpack what does that really mean. You know, to be silent in heaven for half an hour. What's going on in heaven right now? Well, people are worshiping. There's prayer ascending before Almighty God. But here in verse 1 it says there's silence. <clears throat> and I saw the seven angels who stand before God... And seven trumpets were given to them. And you remember I pointed out that these numbers are very symbolic. You know, seven is a very symbolic number. It speaks of perfection or completion. You know, the, the last word on something, seven. 
So there's these seven messengers of God, and they're given seven trumpets. And verse 3 says, Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. A censer is something where incense can rise from. And there's, this is a picture, again, from the Old Testament. There's the temple which was made in fashion to the heavenly, heavenly realm. Moses actually built the tabernacle as a pattern built after heaven. And now there's, this, there's, a, there's no altar of sacrifice in heaven, but there is an altar on earth because there's a need for sacrifice for sin. But then there's another altar, and it's the altar of incense where, you know, it represents the prayers of God's people. It says... Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. And now we know that this throne is the throne of God. We know this is the throne where we can find mercy and help in our time of need. We can come and petition before God and find grace there. And then it says, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer And he filled it with fire from the altar. And he hurled it on earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Wow. Now, how many know, this is, you know, we've talked about apocalyptic language. He's seeing a vision. And in the vision, John is seeing the nature of what prayer is really all about. He's seeing that prayer goes up before God and it ascends like incense before Almighty God. So it's a... You know, there's a sense of it's a sweet-smelling savor to God. There's, there's an aroma about prayer. It's pleasant to God. And, and when these prayers are going up, he's, they're going up with the incense. And then all of a sudden, the Bible says the angel took some fire from the altar. So there's a, something happens to our prayer. Either they're getting purified, some scholars think, or... You know, God's adding something to our prayers, but then they're coming back to earth. And one writer described it as reverse thunder. So our prayer is going up, and all of a sudden, boom, it's coming back. But when it comes back to earth, it looks a lot differently now. It's, it's got, you know, it's like a storm. How many remember a few weeks back we had this great storm? You know, there was rumbling, and there was thunder, and there was lightning, you know? And sometimes when you have some pretty intense storms like that, you can almost feel the ground shake a little bit. Ever had those experiences? Yeah. And, and what he's basically describing is the, the effect that prayer has on planet Earth. It's like a major storm hits the planet. So keep that in your mind. Because I don't think we think of prayer like that. I think we think of, you know, I'm weak. I say this little prayer. I feel broken. I feel fragile. I wonder if God's even hearing my prayer. I wonder if God even cares about me, you know. And so I'm praying this prayer, but now God's describing the answer as this major storm hitting the planet. So obviously, prayer has great impact on this planet. Prayer actually can affect the destiny of people's lives. It can affect the destiny of nations. People have cried out in prayer. Things have changed. God has moved sovereignly. Weather patterns have changed. We're going to talk all about this. Like God is obviously in control of life. So what are we to make of this chapter dealing with prayers that are answered in such a dramatic matter on earth? How can we understand these angels blowing trumpets and great expressions of judgment begin to fall on our planet? And what we find is that this chapter is actually an answer to prayer. Now, I'm going to point you back. And I think that's why we, when we're trying to understand something, especially like this, I think we need to look at the context. And in chapter 6, verse 9, it says, when he opened the fifth seal. Now, we, now he's opened the, sixth, the, the seventh trumpet. I mean, the first trumpet. 
I mean the seven seals, sorry, that's opening up the seven trumpets. But now at the fifth trumpet, this is earlier, it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. So what is going on here? What is going on here is that people have stood as a witness to God And because of their witness, they have actually been persecuted and some have laid down their lives. And so there's this great sense of evil prevailing and injustice has been demonstrated. And so there's a cry. It's it's a cry for justice is what it is. And I'm going to ask a question. I want to raise it this way. How many of you get a little disturbed when you see injustice happen. Does that, does, is, how many say injustice bothers me? Anybody injustice bother you? And especially when it's done to you. Or think of, you know, you know, a person who's experiencing injustice in their life. You know, I think of a child maybe who's being molested by a stepfather. That's unjust. That's evil, isn't it? And the child is going, why is this happening to me? What have I done? You know, is this ever going to come to an end? That's, that's injustice. How many, you know, you kind of go, wow, that's, that's terrible, Pastor. And we could just go on and we could talk about one injustice after another. And we really feel it keenly when injustice is done to us, when we have been treated poorly for no reason. And we're suffering injustice and we wonder, is there an end to this? Why is this happening? And will God ever see this injustice? Why is it that evil is triumphing in this situation. And it seems like God is not doing anything about it. Why does he allow evil to happen in the world? Isn't that a great question? Isn't that something that we kind of wonder sometimes? But yet there's a cry coming up from the human heart. Now I want you to think back in history. All the way back in biblical history. Because I think it frames it for us. We go all the way back to the book of Exodus. When the Israelites who were now taken into, you know, they were in Egypt. And eventually Pharaoh, you know, created a slave culture, and, the, and they, were, they were mistreated. There was, there was racial uh, inequality. And I think a lot of people in our world today face racial inequality, right? Isn't that happen? All the time. And people are discriminated against. Isn't there discrimination in our world? How many say there's discrimination in our world? And these people were put in slavery. And there was a cry ascending to God, and they were crying out to God, and it seemed like God didn't care. These were his people, but he wasn't answering. And yet God was answering. And last week I talked about Moses, how God heard the cry and raised up Moses. It took 80 years. They were in slavery, not just for you know a few months, not just for a year, but sometimes some of them were born in slavery, and some of them died in slavery. And it seemed like God had forgotten their address. There was great injustice. And why was God not answering that prayer sooner? That's the question we all ask. But God was hearing their cry. And the Bible says God came to Moses and said, I've heard the cry of my people. I'm sending you to go speak to the king of Egypt. And I want you to demand that they release my people so that they can come and worship me. Remember that story? It's called the Exodus. And when we read the story, we're, we're shocked and fascinated as Moses comes on the scene and there's these great plagues that come against Egypt. And now all of a sudden, we switch gears and go, wow, why is God so upset with the Egyptians? Why is God punishing these people? Why is God taking them to task? Why is God allowing you know, judgment to fall on their land? Because they had been oppressive to a people for a long period of time. And what we need to understand is that God is concerned both with the victims and with the victimizers. God is concerned with both groups of people. God is hoping that the victimizers will stop their evil behavior and repent and show mercy and kindness to their victims. Isn't that what God is concerned about? Absolutely he's concerned about that. And so God is waiting not only for the Egyptians to get their act together, but what about the inhabitants of Canaan? 
these nations in the land of Canaan for 400 years now have served other evil deities or principalities and they've been offering up their own children and sacrifice to these gods. They've been living in abject fear and they've lived a perverted lifestyle so much so that they've distorted themselves and they have violated the very image of God in their lives. And God is waiting for them to repent and return to him. And he's given them not just a generation but he's given them generation after generation to repent but they just get harder and more distant and more rebellious towards the true and the living God. And eventually we know what's the story, what happens. God says, finally, I'm going to let my people go. He takes them out of Egypt. He brings them into the promised land. And he begins to destroy the nations in that land. God brings judgment on all evil. That's the picture we need to understand here. So in chapter 8, we're introduced to two connected concepts. Prayer and its relationship to our world. And we're also connected to the thought of injustice and how God's going to address it in response to answered prayer. Those ideas are connected in this chapter. And so there's two movements that I want you to look at. The first movement is a portrait of the apocalyptic vision of the power of prayer upon our world. It, you know, it's a poetic viewpoint. You know, we think of, well, we, we pray and that's it. God is showing you, when you and I pray, it's significant. Actually, it looks like a storm coming back to the planet. I mean, that's, how many think that's kind of a powerful image? How many have really thought about your prayers as being a major thunderstorm coming back down and really, you know, doing... Man, is that ever powerful, you know? You kind of almost feel like that story of the elephant that was walking with the mouse, and they crossed over the bridge, and the mouse said to the elephant, man, did we ever rock that bridge? You know? <laughs> and isn't that the way you feel when you're walking with God and you're praying, and God's kind of rocked something in your world? It's just amazing. You just go, wow, God, look what we did, you know? And actually, God lets us you know, partner with him. And, you know, even though we're the mouse and he's the elephant in the story, we're just amazed at how God moves so powerfully in that situation. Well, Eugene Peterson in his book, Reverse Thunder, writes in regard to what's transpiring in chapter eight. He said, the silence prepares the imagination to receive an incredible truth. Well, while conflict rages between good and evil, prayers were going up from a devout band of first century Christians all over the Roman Empire. Massive engines of persecution and scorn were ranged against them, and they had neither weapons nor votes. In other words, they were powerless. And then he says they had little money and no prestige. Why didn't they have a mental breakdown? Why didn't they just cut and run? And his answer is because they knew the power of God, and they knew what happens when you pray. They began praying, and God began to overturn some of the most powerful institutions of the land in that day. I don't think we really grasped how powerful prayer is, because if we did, we'd pray more. We really would. We would not, you know, feel so disheartened or so discouraged about things that are happening in our world. But, you know, this idea of silence in heaven, you know, Peterson says, well, I think it's just to prepare our imagination. I think it's deeper than that. And I want to point you back to the Old Testament. In Zephaniah chapter 1 and verse 4, it says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah. God is now speaking through his servant to his own people who had rebelled against him. He says, I'm going to stretch out my hand against them, against all who live in Jerusalem. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the idolatrous priests. In other words, they had become idolaters. They had turned their back on God and began to worship false gods. Those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry starry hosts. Those who bow down and swear by the Lord and who also swear by Moloch. In other words, these guys were syncretistic. They were not only worshiping God, but they were worshiping false gods. In other words, they were accommodating to everything. And they were also worshiping the starry hosts. What's that? 
the starry host. The heavens, the stars. Oh, by the way, do we do that today? Man, every day I get my newspaper, I look toward the back page, there's a whole list of uh, astrology. What is all that about, astrology? It's all about people trying to determine, based on the constellations and where they're lined up, your destiny and story. And a lot of people say, well, I just look at that at interest. No, that's actually false religious worship. You're looking for something other than what God, you know, it's, it's learning to trust something other than God. You know, I don't need to look to the stars to know my destiny. I know the one who's created the stars. He holds my destiny. You see, I don't have to put faith in what humanity's doing because humanity always falls short. I can put faith in the one who's created humanity. I'm looking beyond creation. I'm looking to the creator. That's what we need to put our hope in. Then it says, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord for the day of the Lord is near. Now I think I see a connection between the silence and the day of the Lord. Now, every time you see this expression in the Bible, the day of the Lord, it's speaking of God's ultimate day when he's going to make everybody accountable to him, the creator. It's a day of judgment. It's something we don't want to hear. See, we're living in a culture that wants to be unaccountable. Come on now. We're rebels. We want to do our own thing. We don't want anybody to tell us what to do. We want to, we want to live life on our terms. And yet, we, the created, have an accountability to the creator. We're going to stand before him. And before he deals with us, there's silence. And so now, as I think John is opening the book, he's, he's moving back to that Old Testament illusion. There's a silence. The day of the Lord has now come. God is about ready to deal and judge his world and correcting all the injustices that our world has dished out. There is a cry rising into the heavens right now. You see, not everybody prays the same way. I believe every time somebody's oppressed, somebody's taken advantage of, somebody's manipulated, somebody's abused, that cry is going before Almighty God. There is a cry reaching the heavens right now. And it's touching the ears of God. Every act of malice, every inhumanity, God hears that cry. But the question that's being raised by the abused and violated is, why is this happening to me? How long will this go? Will there ever be an end? Is there any hope for me? And Peter reminds us that God will address all sins. Matter of fact, in 2 Peter, it says this, um, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. Why doesn't God deal with things quicker? He's showing long-suffering and patience. He's hoping that we'll change our mind. He's hoping that we'll turn back to him. Well, we'll repent. We'll say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I've done my own thing. I've forsaken your way. And God's desire is for all humanity. He loves us all. He has a deeper level of compassion. You and I are, if we were God, we would be far less compassionate. I can tell you that right now. How many know that's probably true? You know, you know, we're compassionate towards ourselves. If we do something wrong, we want mercy. If somebody else does something wrong to us, we don't want to show mercy. You know, we want to see judgment. We want to see that person dealt with, right? Of course. But God is far more compassionate. Listen to what Ezekiel says. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their wicked ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, you people of Israel? In other words, he's saying, listen, I, I, don't, get it. I don't get off on people you know, perishing. I want you to respond. 
You know, Paul Spilsbury in his book on Revelation says, the book of Revelation depicts God's response to evil in quite a different, though not contradictory way. What he's talking about is, when, when, the, when the epistles or the gospels are talking about evil, generally they're not talking about it in the way John, in his apocalyptic vision, is talking about it. And what he means by that is he says, you know, here God's wrath is more graphic and violent. How many of you know, read through the book of Revelation? It's kind of a graphic book, you know. Fire and stuff's coming down from heaven, you know. It's pretty intense reading through that book. You know, it's deeply disturbing and a thoroughly upsetting portrayal of God's anger towards sin. The reason for this change is that we are no longer in the relatively straightforward world of discourse that we find in Paul's letters, but in the strange and frightening world of the apocalyptic. Wow. That's why Paul uses images and pictures to communicate spiritual principles. John takes us to new heights of symbolic depiction. Paul speaks of God giving people over to the consequences of their sin. John speaks of God's angels putting great vats of deadly poison on the earth. Paul simply says the wages of sin is death. Revelation speaks of demonic locuses, cosmic earthquakes, and worldwide pestilences. Paul and John are not speaking contradictory messages. They're simply communicating their message differently. They're using different images to say the same thing. That's what he's saying. You know, the function of the judgment sequence in Revelation is to tell us something about God's nature and his attitude towards sin. You know, God hates sin. God hates it. We need to understand that. God hates it. Why? Because it's so destructive. It's destructive to ourselves and it's destructive to others. They give us an image of the severity of God's wrath that is active in the world because of sin. So what are we going to learn from this image of prayer? God hears the cry of the oppressed. You need to know something. If you take advantage of somebody, you hurt somebody, and, they, and they're wounded and they're offended and they're hurt, God's paying attention. That's what you need to understand. That means I've got to be on the alert. I've got to treat people with respect and love and forgiveness and dignity. You know, I should not be walking around you know, harboring offense and anger and bitterness. See, I've got to get rid of all that junk. I've got to let go of that stuff. I got to trust, number one, that God's a forgiver. I need to be a forgiver. Number two, I need to know that God will deal with people. Not me. That's not my job. God will do. And you know what? If God shows them mercy because they repent, that's a wonderful thing. They become a brother or sister in Christ. Way better, right? Absolutely. But one thing we need to know, if people persist in their sin, God will judge them. That's what we need to understand. So here we get the second warning. And it's simply this. There's a warning of judgment for unrepentant sin. God will give many opportunities for us to repent. God will show mercy to us. But there will come a moment it'll end. And then we'll experience ultimate judgment. So what is significant about trumpets? Because now you've got you know, seven trumpets, right? Well, think about what trumpets are. In the Old Testament... They would have a trumpet to call people to a festival or to, you know, to, you know, you have a coronation of a king. But, you know, trumpets were also used in battle. In the heat of a battle with all that noise going on, you know, they would have different trumpet sounds to call attack, retreat. You know, they were simp- there was uh, different messaging happening via trumpeting. But how many know trumpets were also a, a, an alarm? Let's say you're standing on the wall, you're watching your city, an ar- invading army comes. What do you do? You sound the alarm, you blow the trumpet to sound an alarm. Listen, there's imminent danger and destruction coming our way. You need to attend to this, okay? So how many get an idea? Trumpets have an, there's a purpose in it. And so in the book of Joel, an Old Testament prophet, he says this, blow the trumpet in Zion. Does anybody know where Zion is? Yeah. That's Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is Zion. It's another name for it. Okay, it's a synonym for Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Where's the holy hill? Well, that's in Jerusalem, on the temple site. That's the holy hill. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, blow the trumpet in the house of the Lord. Isn't he what he's saying? If you interpret this correctly, he's saying, blow the trumpet. Sound an alarm where my city, my holy city is, and where the temple is, which is where my presence is. Blow the alarm. Blow the alarm so the people of God hear this. He says, let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand. Remember what I said the day of the Lord is? It's a day of judgment. He's sounding the alarm. Blow the trumpet. So now we get seven trumpets being blown here in this chapter. And we're going to notice, and I've said it before, that these are not necessarily sequential judgments. See, that's what we always think when we read through Revelation. Actually, you have the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. But the reality is when you open the seventh seal... Boom, seven trumpet judgments come out. When you open the seventh trumpet, you get the seven bowls, okay? So they're happening, like, they're, they're interconnected is what I'm trying to communicate to you. Now, the only difference is that these events intensify in severity. When you read it, like we're going to read the trumpet, the trumpet judgments right now, four of them. They're going to say a third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of this. When you get to the bold judgments later on, it's all of the sea, all of this. It's more severe. It's intensifying. Why is that happening? Because what God is doing is when he brings a judgment, he, it's a warning to repent. But if we don't listen to the warning, the judgment gets more severe. Now, here's what I'm going to say to us. How does that apply to us? In our personal lives, we're either listening to God or we're not listening to God. When we listen to God, we're tender-hearted, we're sensitive, we're responsive to God. But as we, we know, as we disobey God, we get a little harder. And so what God does is He brings judgment into our lives. He allows some pain, some difficulty come to us, and we have a choice that we can repent and say, God, I'm sorry, I, I realize now I'm doing the wrong thing. Or we harden our hearts again, and we get more stiff-necked, more hardened, and more indifferent to God, and all of a sudden the judgments that come our way become more and more severe until finally we're done, we're gone. It's over. Now, I want to point back to the book of Exodus again. Because this book is actually, this book is mirroring the book of Exodus. Think about what's happening in the first century. The church is under great persecution. They're almost like the Israelites in bondage. They have no power, no authority, no votes, no money, no prestige. They have prayer. They're crying out to God. And then God sends the judgments on the Egyptians. Now God is going to send judgments here in Revelation on the inhabitants of the earth. That's what we need to understand. But why does God, why is God communicating judgment on Pharaoh, the king of Egypt? Listen to what Moses says to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh. That's Pharaoh's king. And say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. I'm going I'm to make a comment here. Whenever a government impedes worship of the true and living God, God will bring judgment on that government. You just heard me say that? It'll happen. I'm saying it. It'll happen. It may not happen immediately, but it will happen. I guarantee you. Pharaoh suffered because he did this. God says, let them go. Let them worship. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to get in trouble. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there's no one like me in all the earth. 
I want to make a declaration. There's a lot of people in our nation do not believe there's a God. They're atheistic. You know what? Just because someone says there's no God, they're saying no to God. doesn't mean God doesn't exist. You know, if a person's blind and, you know, they can't see something, it doesn't mean that what they're not seeing is not real. They just don't know if it's real. That's all. They're just living in a state of ignorance. And all I'm saying to you is God is going to reveal himself to this whole universe, this whole cosmos, this whole world, this whole planet. He is the true and the living God, just like he did to the Egyptians back here in the day. Listen to what it says. But now I, for by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. How many know that God measured his judgments on the Egyptians? He didn't totally destroy them. He measured them out. And guess what God does? He measures them out, just like he's doing in the book of Revelation. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God says, my purpose is to reveal who I am. God will reveal himself to this planet. You and I need to rest assured of that. So how are these acts of judgment a message of hope and not just a message of terror and judgment? Well, if I'm an oppressed person, if I'm a follower of God and I'm being persecuted, this is a great message of hope. God is not going to ignore my plight. God's not going to just let my sacrifice, even maybe my loss of life, go unaddressed. Un God's going to deal with it. God's going to address it. I need to know that. You know, as a matter of fact, I, I like what uh, uh, Paul uh, Pils, uh, Spilsbury says. He says, the plagues were the preliminary events that enabled the people to leave their slavery in Egypt. It says, thus there is... Woven into the fabric of judgments, a message of hope and salvation to the followers of the Lamb. After the plagues, the exodus, John is urging his flock not to lose heart because the, because the time for their rescue is near. Remember Jesus used apocalyptic language in Luke chapter 21 and Matthew chapter 24 when he says, now in the end times, this is what you're going to see. There'll be earthquakes, there'll be wars, famines, plagues. Remember all of that? Then he says this. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. If you're a child of God, you can say, you know what? All this crazy stuff we're seeing in our world, just look up. Jesus, you're coming soon now. You're coming soon. I'm looking. I see all of the things that are happening in our world, and my eyes are lifting to you. And even though this may cost me on the earthly realm, I already know what's going down here. This is all going to come to an end. You're going to address all this evil. We have that hope. That's a beautiful thing. That's what we need to understand. So what, what things? Persecution, earthquakes, famine, wars, fearful events, signs in the heavens. Let me just go through the four tr trumpets. I'm just going to mention them in passing. First trumpet sounded is followed by a consuming fiery hail that affects the land. It says, The first angel, verse 7, sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on earth. A third of the earth was burnt up, a third of the trees were burnt up, and all of the green grass was burnt up. Why a third? That's because, I don't, I don't think this is a literal third. I think what he's saying is, it's only a partial judgment. He's showing mercy. That's what we're getting from the story here. It's an opportunity uh, for people to repent and to turn back to God in the midst of natural catastrophes. So I'm going to ask a question. Last Tuesday, what was that? Was that simply a random act of nature? I'm just asking. You see, if, I'm, if, I, if I've been educated in Canada, I have a very skeptical viewpoint of anything that's spiritual. I just think everything's naturalistic. I look at this as just a random act of nature. You know, that's the end of it. That's how I, that's how I explain it. I just move on. 
Boy, aren't we, aren't we, aren't we, aren't we uh, lucky? Weren't we just lucky that nobody got killed? Weren't we just lucky? I'm going, wait, wait a minute. See, if you have a Christian mindset, you have a biblical worldview, you go, no, no. The weather is in the hands of God. As a matter of fact, I read in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1, listen to what it says. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. God's the one that's restraining bad weather. So why did God release it? Why did God let this wind come through our city? See, I think that's what we have to ask ourselves the question. This is not just a random act of nature, folks. As a matter of fact, it's very fascinating that they've done studies on these winds and they could, this wind could have been twice the strength. Could you imagine today if we're here in church today crying because a thousand people died in our city? Could it have happened that way? Yes. Of course it could. So why, 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 why nothing happened? Oh, you know, well, Pastor, listen, there was damage in buildings. Trees were knocked over. It put people out of electricity for five or six days. I believe God's trying to talk to us. He's trying to get through to our culture. He's trying to warn us. He's trying to speak to us. He's trying to say, listen, your life is very fragile. Your life is very fragile, folks. We should all act like, you know what? Every breath is a gift from God. Every breath is a gift from God. The fact that you're living is a gift from God. The fact that you, you know, have what you have is all a gift from God. He can take it away in a moment. In a moment, it can be gone. We could have lost everything. You could have lost your family the other day. But we don't think that way. Oh, aren't we lucky? Maybe we should be asking a different question. Lord, what are you trying to say to us? What are you speaking into our lives? What, what is this really all about? What's, what's the meaning of this? Maybe God is saying, you know what? You need to be more concerned about the people around you. Maybe next time it won't just be you know, physical damage. Maybe the next time there'll be a loss of life. That's a big deal. Now it's getting to be a big deal. Maybe it's somebody you love. Now, if you're a Christian and your life is lost in a storm like that, you're okay. Where are you? You'd be in heaven. You think the majority of people in our city really know God? Where would they be? They'd be lost. They'd be eternally separated from the true giver of life. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. They would be lost. You know, maybe we're just not that concerned about the things that are happening in our country. Maybe we're just sleeping. Maybe as the laws are being stripped away and the, and the freedoms that we've enjoyed for 150 years as Canadians. And I'm going to talk about that next week. You know, what made our nation great? What makes our nation so amazing is the freedoms we enjoy. But you know what? We're starting to lose those freedoms because we're attacking the very foundation of where those freedoms originate from. Do you have any understanding of why we have freedom? Jesus is the one that brings us freedom. And the people before us in this nation and another generation, for the vast majority of them, were followers of Christ and of our God. That's right, folks. And we're losing that. Maybe God's just trying to tell us, you're losing some very precious things. And you don't, you're asleep. You don't even know about it. Are we really praying? Are we really crying out to God for the injustices in our land? You know, what about all of these children that are being sacrificed in the God of mammon or materialism or personal convenience? I wonder if there's a cry ascending to the throne of God and he hears this cry. 
And day and night he hears this cry. And day and night nothing has happened for year after year. But God says, you know, I've had enough of this cry. And now I'm about to do something in this land. Does God have a right to judge Canada? Have we turned our back on God? We have. We really have as a nation. We've done our own thing. We're so smart. I always say we've become stupid. You know, we think we're wise. We've got it all figured out now. But isn't that a scary thought that a wind can come through with no sense of warning whatsoever? Very little warning. Boom! You know, we have no control over that stuff. Is God trying to talk to us? I think he is. So, let me move on to the second trumpet. Sounds and death comes to the sea. Second angel sounds his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, not a literal mountain. Like a mountain, it says. Some people say, well, maybe a meteor, meteor fell to earth and did this damage in the sea. But maybe this is another way of speaking of something beyond that. Like Jeremiah talks about how Babylon is considered a mountain. Listen to what it says, Before you rise, I will repay Babylon, all who live in Babylon, for all the wrong they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. I am against you, you destroying mountain. Isn't that interesting? He likens this nation to a destroying mountain. What's he basically saying? You're an oppressor. You're full of pride and arrogance. And I believe God is always against pride and arrogance. He's against that attitude. He's opposed to it. God says, I'll stretch out my hand against you. I'll roll you off the cliffs and make you a burnt out mountain. Isn't that interesting? Wow. So here we have it described as a mountain. God's judgment will impact our oceans and our seas. You know, I agree with some of the environmentalists. We need to be concerned about what's happening to our environment. You know, but I think they got the wrong understanding. A lot of environmentalists worship nature. They're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. But what's really polluting our environment is far deeper than just our materialism and our greed. That's a form of sin. But humanity's rebellion against God is affecting our creation in a negative way. And actually, when you read the book of Romans, chapter 8, you'll find out that the, the whole of the created world is waiting for its own redemption. God not only redeems humanity from their sins, but he de- redeems the entire creation from sin. Isn't that a beautiful thing? God's going to give us a new earth, folks. See, we think ultimately we're going to live in heaven. No, heaven's going to come back down to earth. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And the heavenly city's coming down to earth. God's going to renew the whole planet. That's part of the redemptive plan. I know we don't usually think of it that way, but that's what Revelation teaches us. And we'll get there eventually. Wow, is this intense stuff or what? And it says here, uh, in the fourth trumpet, the third trumpet sounded, and the waters are poisoned, and death comes to many. You know, we can talk about pollution. But I'm going to move on to the fourth trumpet is sounded, and the heavenly constellations are affected. It says here in verse 12, The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Okay, hold it. I mean, this isn't making any sense. You know, if you're taking all this stuff literally, you know, stars, third third of this and that, I'm going, let's go back to chapter 6. This has already happened there. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat's hair, the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth. Well, if the stars in the sky has already fallen to the earth, what's going on later on here? Or is this all happening at the same time? A fig drops from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
What are we to make of this vision? An earthquake so great that the stars are shaken from the sky is clearly something that we cannot take literally. I believe that. As always, the vision communicates to us in metaphor and picture. And I like what Paul Spillsbury says. The great earthquake of the seal opening is a picture of God's conquest of the spiritual powers of the universe. Listen to what Isaiah says. The Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Doesn't that kind of sound similar? Isn't that language similar to you? Totally similar. What's really going on here, Pastor? What's, What's being taught here? Well, in the ancient world, the hosts of heaven was a way of talking about the celestial or spiritual powers believed to govern the course of the affairs on earth. But you you and I need to understand something. And this will really help us. And don't just say the ancients, they just didn't know any better. They did know a lot more than we realize. What was happening was that there are spiritual powers and principalities governing our world. That's why all of the ancient peoples would worship these elementary principles because they were fearful of being destroyed by them. And so they lived in abject fear. And so the gospel is the good news that God's power is greater than all the principalities and powers. So what happened when Jesus died on the cross? He took captive and brought down all these principalities and powers and, 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 and actually destroyed their authority. That's what's going on here. That's what we're talking about here. You know, thus the rolling up of the sky and the falling of stars symbolize the overthrow of spiritual principalities and powers opposed to God. What, what, what Revelation is really teaching is simply this, that everything that's standing in opposition to the kingdom of God is going to be brought down. And a lot of what you're seeing, what you see in the natural, you think it's just people and, and ideologies and you know, different ways of thinking about life. All of those things that are in rebellion against God, they're all going to be shattered and brought down. That's what you need to understand. That's an amazing, a beautiful picture. You know, you're going, well, you're painting a whole different way of looking at life, Pastor. No, I'm painting to you a biblical worldview. I'm painting to you what's really going on. That there's a dimension beyond the material realm. How many know there's a dimension beyond what you see? There's a realm that's unseen. That which is seen is temporal. That which is unseen is eternal. There's a realm that is far more real and far more enduring and far more eternal. What you and I do not see. And I'm trying to describe to you from the Bible what this realm is. And how the power of God actually overtakes and brings those principalities and powers down. We need to understand that. So then you're saying, okay... We've looked at this vision. Even an eagle flying down and saying, whoa, 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 we've got more problems coming. But let, let me just stop here and say, so, so what? What does all this mean to me, Pastor? Number one, that all injustice and evil will be judged by God. We need to know that. Number two, what we should learn from this chapter is the power of our prayer. We need to see prayer differently. We need to see it as not the last resort, but the first resort. We need to see the power in it and its effectiveness in this world. We need to realize that when we're talking to the true and the living God and we're appealing to his throne for grace and mercy, even though God may not answer immediately, we know that God will answer and address all evil. We need to understand that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't that a beautiful thought? God is so patient with humanity. I mean, he could destroy us, but he doesn't. He loves us. He created us. He longs for us. He wants relationship with us. 
But a lot of people are just in rebellion against God. I'm going to live up my own life, do my own thing, live up my own agenda. Let me tell you something. It's only going to lead to death. It's only going to lead to more judgment. That's exactly what you're reading in this book. Every time people turn their back on God, more judgment. It just gets more intense. So God just lets people, he just gives, in a sense, gives them over to the consequences of their behavior. What a sad thing. You know, I want to just close with these verses of Scripture found in the book of Hebrews. You know what I've discovered over the years as a pastor? That people turn their backs on God, not just one day at one moment. It starts right when they're sitting in the pews. It says, so as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear my voice, if you hear God's voice, you hear the Spirit of God speaking to you. He says, listen, don't harden your hearts. As they did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, and though for 40 years they saw what I did, even though they saw the miracle, even though they saw the provisions, you know what they did? Kept rebelling. That's why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray. They have, always, they have not known my ways. We need to know the ways of God, folks. So I declare on oath in my anger, they will never enter into my rest. Wow. They will never have real peace. There's a lot of torment in people's minds. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It's a warning. How many catch it? It's a warning. Hey, I need to be tender. I need to respond to God. I got to not be stubborn. I need to hear the voice of God. So what is he saying to me? Well, to me, I, I know, I'm just thinking, going, am I praying? Am I concerned about others? Am I concerned about the people that live in my city, my neighbors? Am I concerned about the people that live halfway around the world? Or am I just doing my own thing? You know what's so sad? You know why Canada's going down the tube so fast? Because this nation, we're so self-centered. We're only concerned about our little world. That's it. If it doesn't affect me, I don't really care. And I'm going to tell you, all these decisions that are going down are affecting all of us. But usually by the time we get our act together, it's too late. It's over. You know, I want to close with the story. Think about Germany. In the 1930s, in the 1920s, Germany was a Christian nation in the 1920s. But you know what? They were so caught up with, you know, trying to overcome the Great Depression and they, and they let this guy become a leader. We know what that guy was. He was, he was an anti-Christian. Well, he posed for a while as if he was a Christian, but he was actually against the true church. His name was Hitler. And you saw what he did. You saw what he did to our world. You saw 50 million people lose their lives because the nation was sleeping. The nation was sleeping. Are we sleeping? Are we awake? Do we see what's going on in our world? Do we understand what's really happening? Do we see the conflict between what's right and what's wrong? And how right now we're being told, hey, it's okay to do the wrong things. Who cares? Let's do all the wrong stuff. Let's make laws that, you know, further what's wrong and put down what's right. And I'll tell you what's going to happen. We're going to experience death. We're going to experience judgment. It's coming. It's coming. What are we going to do about it? We're going to pray. And then we're going to do the right things. We're going to say, God, what do you want me to do? What, what, as an individual, what can I do? As a church, what can we do? What can we do? 
Corporate prayer. It's good. We do do that. And we do need to do that. Now you know why I keep us doing it. Let's stand. Just with every head bowed for a minute, I'm just going to close in a word of prayer. How many here say, you know, Pastor, I can honestly say, you know what? If Jesus had taken me home this week, I'm living in Red Deer. I'm in this storm. Or he took me home. It doesn't matter if you weren't even in the city. Right now, if Jesus were to take you home, do you know where you would be for all of eternity? Do you have any idea where you'd be? It's good. You know. Is your faith and trust in Christ? Are you looking to him? Is he your hope? It's good. It's good. We want that. How many here say, you know what, Pastor? I'm not so sure. I know that I'm not doing what I should do and I'm not living the way I should live. But you know what? I know God's merciful and I want to experience mercy, not judgment. How many here say, I want to experience mercy, not judgment? That's you. Just raise your hand. I want mercy, not judgment. Anybody? I got my hand up. I want mercy. I don't want judgment. Yes, I want mercy. I want God's mercies in my life. Do not harden your heart. Say, Lord, if there's some wicked way in me, speak to me. Deal with me. Show me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Help me to learn to trust you. Help me to walk with you. Help me to serve you with all of my heart. You know, God said in chapter 7, he says, I'm going to make a distinction between those that are righteous and those that are unrighteous. Do you know God can make distinctions and spare his people? You know, he allowed outer darkness to come to the Egyptians. He saw only light for the Israelites. It's amazing. God made a distinction. God distinguishes those that are his and those that aren't. Because God can see the human heart. You and I can't. You can tell me, oh, I'm a Christian pastor. God's looking right into your heart. He goes, do you have idols there? Are you putting something there above me? Lord, I surrender that to you. I lay that down. It may be even a legitimate thing, but it's become illegitimate because you've elevated it above God's law. I gotta, I gotta lay that down, Lord. I surrender that to you. I want what's best. And what's best for me is doing your will in my life. It's about living for you and bringing you glory and honor. It's about caring for others, not just about my little world and my little agenda. It's about being concerned for other people. I'm concerned. I got children and grandchildren growing up in this country. I'm saying, Lord, have mercy on Canada. Have mercy on our country. Turn us back to you, Lord. I see where we're going. It's the wrong direction. You know, I feel like I'm standing up, you know, and there's a multitude going the wrong way. Stop, don't go that way. That's death and destruction over there. And you're trying to stop people. People going, get out of the way. I want to go there. I want to go to my death and destruction. Isn't that crazy? You, you know, if you, if, you, if you saw that, if you were standing and you said, the road is out, there's no more road, and people are driving right on by to their death and destruction, you're standing there saying, stop, don't go there. It's death and destruction. And yet you see people zipping by to their death and destruction. How heartrending is that? And God sees that every day. Does that bother you? Are you getting a burden for that? Good. We need to have that. So, Lord, I pray. I pray, turn our hearts to you today. I pray, Father, that you will hear our cry. Lord, I thank you today that you spared us. I believe that you sounded a warning across the bow. And that as a nation, but even more importantly, as a community, as a city, you spared us death. But, Lord, you allowed the wind to come. 
It's a warning. Help us to heed the warning. Help us, oh God, to awaken from our slumber. Help us to realize what's going on around us. Help us to get a vision for what we can do to make a difference. We just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave today.